All righty, we are going through the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke 16, and we're in verse 19 this morning. And let's read, let me read the passages. You follow along, either on your screens or on your Bible. Now, notice this intriguing story that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen. Please be seated. All right, church. What is Jesus telling us in this parable? You know, some of the stories of Jesus are not so clear. And this is one of those. I wrestled this week. I started studying this thing before I went on our two-week trip. And I was working on the way back. And and this week, Lord, what, what does this mean? What is the point is the point involving money? I mean, is that why he starts with the rich man and the poor man? But pretty soon he's not dealing with money. He's dealing with heaven and hell. And is it the nature of the afterlife and heaven and hell? Or is it how do you get into heaven and hell? And then there's that, that stunning statement at the end that even if somebody rises from the dead, they won't repent if they won't listen to the word of God. Jesus, what is this parable about? Sometimes it's crystal clear. Sometimes it's not so clear. And one of the ways to understand the Scriptures is to take things in context. By context, I mean in the flow of the narrative, in the flow of the study. God did not give us individual verses as individual items dropped from heaven on, uh, you know, just, just each one as individuals. In fact, the verses in your Bible were not added until the 1500s. God gave us books of the Bible. He inspired men to write down and write letters or write books to people. And there's a flow of thought just with any book. And so one of the 
principles to understand the Scriptures is to take things in their flow and, and, and understand the context. One of the reasons that I normally preach through books of the Bible is this just so you would get things in context. And, and I'm just sort of modeling how to study the Bible. Now, what's the context of this parable? Well, the whole chapter is really about money. In fact, if you are here in Luke 16, 1 through 13, there's another difficult parable, which is clearly about money. If you were here three weeks ago, remember there is a very wealthy man, and he's got a dishonest manager running his estate. And he's cheating, and so he calls him in and fires him and says, get your books together. And the guy um, uh, makes, cuts a few deals to make some friends um, to take care of himself after he gets fired. And lo and behold, Jesus commends him. He says, look at that shrewd man. He says, you do the same thing with your money. You make friends for the future by means of unrighteous money. And what's Jesus saying? He says, look, be as uh, harmless as doves and as cunning as serpents. Uh, be shrewd. That is, don't be dishonest, but, um, but be street smart in your use of money. This is how you can be street smart. You're not going to live forever here on this planet. You're going to live forever in eternity. Make friends for eternity with your money right now. Friends, that's what you're doing with the chunks. That's what you're doing by sending us over to do these things. That's what we're doing all around with the ministries here. As you give here, you're investing part of your money in the kingdom of God, and people are getting reached and, and for eternity. That's what you're doing. And so, so Jesus is talking about that in this parable, but he ends that parable in verse 13 in a very striking way. So let's look at it. Luke 16, 13. <clears throat> Luke 16, 13. Um, and this is what he says at the end of that parable. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So here is this classic statement from Jesus that the rival in the human heart for God is really not, not Satan, not the enemy. It's money because money has this power about it. It just gets a hold of us and it blinds us and it does all kind of damage, so we've got to watch it. Money's not evil, but the love of money is evil. So use it as a tool to reach people for eternity, that you can enjoy things, but don't serve it. Don't love it. Don't be preoccupied with money. Don't be enamored with money. Don't be impressed with the Bill Gates and the Warren Buffets of the world who are so wealthy. Don't be uh, just awestruck by money. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Money is a tool, not an idol. So he says that, and then guess what the immediate next verse says in verse 14? is something. Verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Are you kidding me? They're standing right in front of Jesus, the Lord of glory, who walks on water and does incredible miracles. And he's teaching them about that, and they had such a love affair with money, such bondage to money, that they were scoffing at him. Ha! Ha! Because they had this deep-seated thought and belief that God had favor upon the wealthy and that your wealth was a sign that God had accepted you and had blessed you. Now, friends, 
We know better than that. We know that God doesn't favor the wealthy. We know that God doesn't love the Bill Gates and the Warren Buffets of the world more than the, than the little villagers in Malawi that I saw two or three weeks ago who have no pair of shoes or maybe one pair of clothes. We know that. But somehow, at times, we get foggy. We're immersed by world. We're immersed by wealth. We're the wealthiest culture in history. Compared to all of the people in world history, uh, the wealthy aren't those folks that have a lot more money than us. We're the wealthy. We're the wealthy. We're in the top 0.5 percentile. We're the wealthy. And it's easy to get the foggy notion slipping into our mind that somehow God's favor is on the wealthy. That God's blessing is on the wealthy. That God's acceptance is on the wealthy. That's what the Pharisees thought. Now, we're, we think about it. We know that's not true. We know that money is a tool. That wealthy people can love Jesus and they cannot love Jesus. That poor people can love Jesus and not love Jesus. You got to watch money because it can uh, sway you and deceive you and, uh, and, and you can start trusting in it. So you got to be careful. But not a bad thing in itself. But we are immersed in wealth and it is easy for us to begin thinking that somehow maybe we're a little special because we got more money. If I go to Malawi, as I did a couple of weeks ago, and I'm out in the villages, in the boonies, and these kids are running around. They have no shoes. They have one pair of clothes, no change of clothes, and they're dirty. And they don't have enough protein to eat. And if I think for one moment that I am somehow superior to them because I've got more wealth than them, then woe is me. Woe is me. Because that is just not true. I happen to be born in the United States by the grace of God. That is not true at all. Jesus is talking to Pharisees who were lovers of money. And they were ridiculing Jesus because they thought that our money was a sign that God had accepted us. In response, Jesus tells them a simple story. And he said, there was a rich man. And you see in the story, he was really wealthy. He's described at the outset as wearing purple and fine linen. If you go to Israel today and go to Nazareth, and there's a little outdoor village, kind of a pioneer museum like in Williamsburg. In fact, our friend Amer is one of the key guides. He's been to Wood's Edge before. He will show you that the purple dye is so unusual there that only the very wealthy could afford it because it comes from a shellfish. So for Jesus to tell us this guy had fine linen and purple, so he's very wealthy. And he feasted. He didn't feast once a week. He didn't feast once a month. He feasted sumptuously every day. And and he was wealthy, had plenty of money. And then there was this poor man who was so poor, so hurting, he couldn't walk to his gates. He had to be carried to his gates because he was getting around really poorly. And he was covered with sores, so much so that the dogs licked his sores. And he found himself longing to just eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. So Jesus painting a stark contrast and picture. And then all of a sudden, we go to the next scene, and all of a sudden, they both die. And the poor man is at Abraham's bosom. Now, that is a phrase that was used for heaven by the Jews, Abraham's side. Abraham, the founder of our faith. He's at Abraham's side. He's in heaven. But Lazarus dies... I mean, the, the rich man dies, and he goes to Hades or hell. And so you've got that stark contrast. And then it get, the plot gets even thicker because there's a conversation between hell and heaven. 
Not between the rich man and the poor man, but between the rich man and Abraham. As he's asking, you know, uh, send Lazarus on submissions to be my errand boy kind of thing. And there's this conversation that takes place. And then he asks a couple of things. Abraham twice turns him down, says no, explains why, and then has that stunning statement, even if somebody rises from the dead, if they don't believe in the Bible, if they don't believe in the Word of God, they won't be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Whoa. It's an amazing passage. And in the context, he is telling us this man's wealth meant no acceptance with God. And he will explain how you do gain acceptance with God. Now, let's unpack it a bit. There's two requests. The first request, remember, he's down in hell. He's in torment. By the way, by the way, the point of this parable is not heaven and hell. It's not how it starts. It's not how it ends. But there are some things that we can learn about heaven and hell. What do we learn about heaven and hell from this passage? First of all, we learn that heaven is real. There is a real heaven. The people are really going to go to it. That we're not going to be on this earth forever. And it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Lazarus, the poor man um, who is so hurting, um, then, you know, he is just, you know, it's going to be good. Heaven, this is what Revelation 21 tells about heaven. It's going to be the immediate, physical, tangible presence of God. And there will be unrestrained joy, peace, love. There will be no cancer, Jordan. There will be no tears. There will be no hernia surgeries. There will be no pain. There will be no uh, heartache. Uh, It will be good. It will be good. We don't know why there's so much pain here, but we know this is not heaven. This is a world in rebellion against God. That will be heaven. And we can go there through the shed blood of God's own son who died in our place. It will be so good. And the Bible, it's not going to be singing songs forever and playing hearts on golden streets. Think about everything that is good and multiply it times a billion and take out all of the pain and the heartache, and there you go with heaven. It'll be so good. And it is real. And the stakes are so high. We also see in this passage that hell is real. There's a real hell. And it's not good because it is the absence of God. And the absence of God means the absence of good. And there will be pain, and there will, be, there will not be joy, and there will not be love. And it's more horrible than we can imagine and bear to even think of. But there is a real hell for those who will spurn the grace of God that he holds out to us. And there's some questions and mystery about that, but there is a real heaven, and there is a real hell. Now, you also see in this passage what we see elsewhere, that when you die, you go immediately either to heaven or hell. There's not some soul sleep till the end of time. And that is consistent with what we see elsewhere in the New Testament. That when you die, you immediately go to heaven. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, or you immediately go to the absence of God, to hell, if you haven't. Also, you see that those places are final. You know, there's not going to be, you know, a bunch of second chances like that. Uh, This is just inherent in and, and the sovereign wisdom, the justice of God that we don't begin to understand, but He understands it. And there's no purgatory. There are no second chances. There is an unbridgeable chasm. These things are just a part of the warp and woof of this teaching. Now, the rich man asked Abraham, send Lazarus 
to wet my tongue. But do you notice how he says it? You notice his language? He plays the race card. He plays the Jewish card. Watch what he says here. He says, Father Abraham. Hey, I'm Jewish. Hey, I'm in. Do do you know that the Jews in the first century felt that because they were Jewish, they had an automatic entry into heaven? Some of them think that today. Uh, There are a lot of folks in churches, by the way, who think that because their parents were Christians or because they grew up in a church, they get an automatic entry into heaven. Not so. You know what Jesus says about that? He says, nobody gets into heaven because your your grandparents, you're you're born into it. Um, uh, Luke 3, John the Baptist, earlier in this same book, he says this to the Pharisees. In verse 7, he says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You think you can just say, Abraham's my father? I'm in? No way. You only get in, as we're going to say, by trusting the gospel, the word of God about a Savior. Bear fruits in keeping with your repentance. Your life will change. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, to some extent, there will be some life change in your life. If there's no life change at all, maybe you need to, you know, have I really trusted my, Jesus as my Savior? Or am I just trusting my religion, my, my churchianity, my being in a church? I'm being an American. I'm being Jewish. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The rich man, Father Abraham, here I am. Would you send Lazarus? And Abraham explains to him, for two reasons, no. First of all, it's not right. It's not just. He said, look, in your lifetime, you had your good things, and and, and Lazarus, Lazarus had torment. But now he is in comfort and you're in torment. And and the implication of that oblique statement is this. Look, uh, this is just. You live your life for yourself and you get what you wanted. You get yourself. You know, you didn't live for God. Uh, You you, you didn't, uh, you know, you weren't generous with your money. Here's Lazarus, you know, just desperately poor and you, you never lifted a finger to help him. His use of his money showed his lack of faith that he was living for money and not for God. And he's saying, you know, just, this is just. This is just. The Bible does not say here or elsewhere that you go to heaven because you're generous or you don't go to, uh, you go to hell because you're not generous. But it says that our money is an indicator of our heart. And if you have trusted Jesus' Savior to some degree, You're going to want to be generous and to spread the love of God to hurting people and needy people. So he says, no, uh, it's not just. But he says something beyond that in verse 25, I think it is. He says, not only is it not right, it's not even possible for Lazarus to come for me to you. He says, verse 26, and besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. 
So, you know, you can't be running up here on an errand. We can't be sending people down there on an errand. There is an unbridgeable chasm beginning at death between heaven and hell. No purgatory. No second chances. No, uh, well, you know, just, you know, uh, excuses, that sort of thing. Uh, Your real heart will be shown by then. Will you receive a Savior or will you not? Or in your pride, will you reject a Savior? The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. Not after this comes another waiting period, another opportunity. After this comes judgment. Friends, we don't understand everything about this. And don't be judgmental towards God. He has endless mercy and kindness, much more than we ever thought about having. He sent his own son to die in your place. But the stakes for heaven and hell are so high. They are so high. And that's why I ask us, can we be praying for our top five? That God would open eyes. That God would open hearts, just like he did with us. And and that we would be reaching out and be uh, available and alert. And some of us, including me, need to raise the bar much higher because the stakes are so high. Heaven and hell are eternity. And Abraham says to the rich man, impossible chasm lies between heaven and hell. At that point, the rich man has the second request, the first sign of selflessness in him. This is what he requests. He says, well then, if you won't send Lazarus to wet my tongue, I got five brothers. Would you please send Lazarus to warn them about this place? And what does Abraham say to him? It's astounding. He says, they've got Moses and the prophets. What's that mean? They got the Bible. They got the scriptures. Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets, uh, Joshua through the rest of the Old Testament. That's shorthand for the Bible. He is saying, they've got the Old Testament scriptures. Let your five brothers hear the word of God. And what does Abraham, what does the rich man do? Well, he begins to explain to, to Abraham as if he's an expert on heaven and hell. He begins to explain to him, oh no, oh no. Uh, they won't listen to Moses and the word of God. But if somebody rises from the dead, they will repent. What does Abraham say? He says, if they won't hear the word of God, they won't be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Friends, that is part of our theology of miracles that we need to understand. Do you think that miracles automatically lead to faith? Not so. You can have such a hardened heart, such a stony heart, that in spite of all evidence, you can reject Jesus Christ. I believe that the evidence, I mean, there is faith in Jesus Christ, but I believe that the evidence supporting who Jesus is and the gospel message is, is overwhelmingly sufficient to trust Christ as Savior. Much better than, the, uh, than what you don't have. That's the real leap of faith over here. But yet, there are plenty of people who reject that evidence or who don't even consider it. I had, when I was a student at Rice University, a sweet maid across the hallway. Um, 
He was a tennis player from Sweden, and I liked him a lot. He was not a believer. And as we talked about my faith in Jesus, I was a new Christian at Rice, and I talked to him about Jesus and and what he did and, and who he is and dying on a cross and rising from the dead and eyewitness evidences, people who gave their lives, who died for um, the, the, the testimony, the witness that, yes, we saw the risen Jesus. And as I talked with this friend, I'm going to call him Anders, as I talked with Anders about this, he said to me, well, Jeff, it's just so long ago, just 2,000 years ago, it just seems like God would, would send his son about every 500 years so it would be closer and he could rise from the dead, so he'd be closer to now. And what I didn't think of, of then, but I think of now, is that if you don't believe the testimony of the Word of God, you won't be persuaded even if you see someone rise from the dead. Because God gives us faith, ultimately. It's a gift of faith. And we respond to the Word of God. And John 11, Jesus heals Lazarus different Lazarus. This is not the Lazarus in the story. This is the real Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother. You remember that? He heals Lazarus. A lot of people see Lazarus after that. Do you know what happens? Do they all believe? No, they don't. Some do. Some do. Miracles can lead to faith. They can encourage faith. They can confirm faith. But there were some people who saw Lazarus risen And they had such hardened hearts, they went off and tattled to the religious leaders, hey, you better go stop Jesus. He's over there raising raising people from the dead. Can you believe it? Um, Miracles, we want to see them. God uses them. In Acts 4, when Peter and John were arrested, remember how they prayed? They said, oh God, stretch out your hand to heal and do miraculous signs and wonders for the glory of your servant Jesus. We want to see that. We pray that way. But miracles do not guarantee faith. So we pray to God to give people faith, to open blind eyes, to give life to dead hearts. We pray for our tough. Oh, God, would you open eyes? Would you open hearts? Lord God, would you do what only you can do? What's our perspective on miracles? Well, they don't guarantee faith. Uh, They may lead to faith. They may encourage faith. But uh, faith is a gift from God based on the Word of God. Take God at His Word. At the end of the Gospel of John, Thomas is unbelieving about Jesus. I don't believe he rose from the dead. I'll have to put my hand in his scars and and, uh, touch him if I'm going to believe it. Well, Jesus appeared to him, and Thomas was overwhelmed. He said, my Lord and my God. Oh, you know how Jesus responded? He said, Thomas... You believe because you've seen a miracle. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you. That's you. You have not seen the resurrected Jesus. You have not seen and yet you believe. Based on the testimony of God's word. Way to go. Way to go. Friend, if you're in the room and you have not yet put your trust in a Savior, this is your day. This is your day. The evidence is overwhelming that there is a God in heaven who not only made you, but he loves you. And here is the gospel. He sent his son to die on a cross, and he paid for your sins to redeem you and rescue you. And all you need to do is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
That's what the Bible says in Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What must I do to be saved, the Philippian jailer asked? Believe, trust, receive the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So back to the parable. We've seen that the wealthy, despite what the Pharisees thought, the wealthy, that's no sign of God's acceptance and favor and salvation. Well, how do you get into heaven? Believing the Word of God. Believing the Word of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That may be too simple for some of you guys. Some of you guys may be so intelligent, so sophisticated, so, uh, you know, special that uh, that may be too simple for you. Um, I begged you, I begged you, humble yourself before a holy God and admit that you need a Savior and open your heart to Jesus to save you. He longs to save you. Stand with me, please. Pray with me. Lord God, there are some folks here who know that you're calling them today. Today's their day. Lord, I pray they just breathe a prayer and say, Yes, Jesus, come and save me. Just do that, friend. Do that. Breathe a prayer. Say yes to Jesus. He'll save you. Lord God, I pray that none of us would have any illusions about uh, money, that we would use it as a tool, enjoy it, but not love it or be enamored by it. And we would hold it in perspective. Lord, I pray that we would not be uh, uh, misled about miracles, that they guarantee faith. Lord, we thank you for the miracles. We pray for more miracles. We pray for miracles left and right, Lord God. But we want to be men and women, boys and girls, who trust the Word of God whether or not we see a miracle. Lord, give us grace to do so. Give us grace to do so. Lord, we love you. We bless you. In Christ's name.